Welcome to A History of the Inca. Episode 2, Welcome to the Andes. Hello and welcome to A History of the Inca. As I mentioned in the introduction episode, we will be discussing some background information before we dive into the Inca themselves. So today we will be starting with the landscape. This includes the geography of the area that we will be covering, as well as the climate, the environment, and some information about the people themselves. So let's first get started with the geology. So off the west coast of South America, we have the Pacific Ocean. Easy enough, right? Now offshore, there are two tectonic plates that collide with each other. The western moving plate converges onto the eastward moving Nazca plate. It is the collision of these two plates over millennia that have allowed one of South America's most defining geological features, the Andes, to grow 9 to 15 centimeters each year. And I say one of the continent's most defining features because most likely when I say South America, you think first of the Amazon rainforest. Which is fair, but as a heads up, we will be de dealing with the Amazon very little in this podcast. So let's start by going inland towards the mountains. First, along much of the coast is a hilly desert, with valleys where there are rivers leading down to the ocean. These rivers are fed by the snowmelt and rainwater running off the Andes, situated to the east. If you think this means that farming was possible along these rivers, then you'd be mistaken. Many of the rivers have carved jagged canyons through the bedrock. This leaves no room for farming except closer to the ocean, where the rivers fan out before meeting the surf. Moving inland, the Andes quickly rise up from the coast and have various environmental zones. The Yungas zone ranges from 300 meters to 2,300 meters above sea level. This area tends to be warmer, and there are zones on both the east and west side of the Andes. The Quechua zone is from 3,100 meters to 3,500 meters, and is arguably the most productive zone in terms of farming. But we will cover farming in more detail in a future episode. For now, let's stick with the Andes. The Sunni zone is at 4,000 meters and consists of cold hills, ridges, and valleys. The Puna goes up to 5,000 meters or three miles above sea level. The Puna is an alpine tundra where the climate is cold, damp, and foggy. However, this grassland is the natural habitat for the Andes camelids. The alpaca, guanaco, vicuña, and the famous Llama. However, we're still not done climbing. What we've just covered is the western ridge of the Andes, called the Cordillera Negra. Named because this ridge does not have snow on its peaks year-round. What we have yet to climb is the Cordillera Blanca. As you may have guessed, this ridge has its peaks constantly blanketed by snow and glaciers. To get to the Cordillera Blanca, though, we have to actually go down back to the Quechua Zone, and then up, and up, and up. 
The highest peak of the Cordillera Blanca, and all of the Americas for that matter, is Mount Aconcagua, located along the Chilean-Argentinian border with a height of 6,960 meters, or 4.3 miles. Climbing down on the eastern side, we travel through the previous mentioned environmental zones, into the upper forests, and finally the lower forests or what is the beginning of the Amazon. Sticking with the mountains though, there are several that are volcanic and with the Nazca plate off the coast, eruptions and earthquakes do occur and sometimes devastatingly. An event near Lima in 1970 took roughly 70,000 lives. The earthquake sheared off a mountain face, burying the town of Yungay and its 4,000 inhabitants in minutes. In the year 1600, the volcano Huanaputina in southern Peru completely exploded, leaving tens of thousands dead in an enormous crater where the volcano once stood. Alright, just a tad more about the terrain. To the north, in present-day Ecuador, the Cordillera Negra, so the western ridge, extends further, and the terrain is more lush. Here there are mangrove swamps along the coast, breaking up the mountains in modern-day Bolivia and Argentina. There is a large plateau called the Altiplano. This is a large windswept grassland where once again we can find many camelid species and the world's highest navigable lake, Lake Titicaca. The Andes continue south, though, with the Cordillera Blanca extending further than its counterpart, and the land is more arid, creating the driest desert in the world, the Atacama Desert. Now, you might not think that one ridge extending further south or north than the other is not a big deal, or at least not valuable information. However, the extension of these ranges in their respective direction Negra, North, Blanca, South, is crucial for the climate of the region. So in South America, the rain clouds come from the east. These systems typically can't get over the much higher Cordillera Blanca and drop much of their water on the eastern side of the Andes. Very little gets over the top of this towering ridge. In fact, about 90% of the runoff from the mountains ends up in the Atlantic, not the Pacific. However, since the Cordillera Blanca does not extend as far north as the Cordillera Negra, rain clouds can pass over this western ridge most of the time, and thus the landscape is much more lush. Despite the arid climate of the coast, there are typically rainy and dry seasons. The north experiences two of each, courtesy of the Cordillera Negra, allowing those rain clouds to pass over it, while in the south, they experience just one rainy season and one dry season every year. And we can look at the pass and see what the weather was like by examining ice cores. The Calcaea ice cap resides in the Cordillera Blanca in southern Peru. It has been recording the annual precipitation for the region for the past 1,500 years. By counting backwards, one can see what the conditions were like in the past. 
For example, the course showed that there was an immense drought in the region. This drought lasted from 562 AD to 594 AD, 32 years. Rainfall was 30% below the normal during this time period, and there was an increase in dust, as can be seen in the ice cores themselves. At the other end of the extreme, the ice cores also show events called El Nino, or the child. These events are triggered by the marine currents, which usually bring nutrient-rich water up from the depths and to the surface, breaking down. These events have been so intense that they can even slow the Earth's rotational momentum. What El Nino does is cause droughts in the southern mountains and destructive rainfalls in the northern desert coasts. These rainfalls can cause massive flooding and eroding of farmland. In Michael Mosley's The Incas and Their Ancestors, an El Nino event caused tons of sediment from farmlands to be washed away and into the sea, decimating farming for years and causing famine to occur. This inundation of rain also would have caused mudslides. I want to share with you a story from Hugh Thompson's A Sacred Landscape. During this excerpt, a local is describing the scenes from a mudslide at the pre-Inca site of Chavan de Huantar, as an official delegation from Lima inspected the site that had been finally recovered after years of excavating. Now this event that I am about to describe is not the result of El Nino, nor is the site directly located on the coast. However, it will leave you with an image of what a mudslide can actually do. Quote, the roar as the water breached the ice block was what the prefect, his daughter, and the delegation of 30 visitors heard as they came back out of the galleries. None of them survived the torrential deluge of mud and water as floodwaters caused a landslide. The restored ruins were covered in tons of mud. End quote. But Thompson continues, quote, Edgardo, one of the locals, told me that the worst of it was that many inhabitants were carried along in the muck and initially survived. But as the mud was deep and impassable, like jelly, they could not be reached, so died from exposure the following night. End quote. Thompson now quotes the local Edgardo, quote, There was one man I always remember and whose voice I will hear until my dying day. He had got stuck in the mud near our house, and I could hear him calling until two in the morning. There was nothing we could do to help. Then he died. End quote. I won't describe what Thompson says of the wild dogs and what they did to the people who died of exposure. I will just say that I saw a horse dead in a field on our way back from the site one day. Two days later, it was nothing but bones. I apologize if that graphic makes you a little uncomfortable but I want to show you that the Andes were, and can still be, a dangerous place to live. But I don't want this episode to be all doom and gloom, so let's continue. Though scarce, there were resources to be had. Upwelling currents rise from the tectonic trench, carrying chilling but nutrient-rich waters to the top. This supports a prosperous and extensive marine food chain. Anchovies and sardines feed on the phytoplankton, 
and are then eaten by tuna, birds, and sea lions. Rocky and sandy zones along the coast make for excellent habitat for a variety of shellfish to be collected as well. Fishing off the desert coast was an important industry in the times of the Inca and is still important to modern-day countries like Chile. Despite the desert-like climate of the Andes, there is evidence that the region was heavily forested. These forests of polyipus contained trees that were several meters around the base. These would have been excellent building materials for early humans in the Andes. Unfortunately, because of the conditions of the Andes, these trees could not reestablish themselves faster than they were harvested. Thus, what remains of these forests are just a fraction of what they were in the past. In any situation, water is a key resource, and the people of the Andes would often settle along a river or lake if the land was flat enough to be cultivated. We already mentioned camelids, but these animals were, and still are, very important. Llamas are often used as beasts of burden. Llama, along with its wild camelid cousins, the guanaco and the vicuna, are also consumed for their meat. And while I can't speak for the guanaco or the vicuna, llama meat is quite good. Alpacas are raised for their wool, which is spun into various textiles. Wool is still a very important trade good, and the textiles created were, in many cases still are, key to ethnic identity in the Andes. Rounding out the important resources we are going to cover today are minerals and metals. It is no surprise that with the mountainous Andes, deposits of minerals and metals abound. Volcanic activity over the centuries have created volcanic glass called obsidian. This material was used in the Andes, and many other parts of the globe for that matter, as a cutting tool. It would be easy to work it into knives and projectile points for hunting. Metals, such as copper and tin, are found all along the Andes themselves. Silver and gold were very important to the Inca and their predecessors, for religious reasons as opposed to monetary ones. Gold is found in abundance on the eastern side of the Andes. Meanwhile, a wealth of silver was mined extensively at Potosi in modern-day Bolivia. This mine, as well as Andean lives, were exploited by the Spanish during the Viceroyalty of Peru. But we have a ways to go before we get to the Spanish. Let's continue by shifting our focus onto the people who populated the Andes. So who were these people who inhabited these difficult, at times, inhospitable conditions? The Andes began to be populated around 11,000 years ago. Although it wouldn't surprise me if one of you contacts me to sign an even earlier date, as there is still very much an active debate about the earliest settlements in South America. People settled where resources were most abundant and the easiest to obtain. So it is of little surprise that when a new site is discovered, it is often along the coast, where we know there was an abundance of sea resources to harvest. However, as populations expanded and people naturally wandered to see what was over the next hill, or sometimes a mountain, the Andes and Altiplano began to see more and more people as centuries progressed. Over this time, we had different groups inhabit areas along rivers, lakes, and within valleys. These groups developed their own dialects and languages, 
Quechua is a language still spoken in the Andes today and was the official language of the Inca. However, in and around the Altiplano, several different languages were spoken. Uru Chapaya was spoken along the shores of Lake Titicaca and Lake Pupo. Today, there are only a handful of speakers left of this language. Pukina was spoken along the coastal valleys of Peru, but today is extinct as a language. A Proto-Aymara language was spoken in the Altiplano and evolved into the Amara language that is predominantly spoken in the area today. But these people had to adapt for life at high elevations. We already discussed how high the Andes are, and altitude sickness is still common today. It can even be fatal. Anyone who visits Guzco, for example, is advised to take it slowly and get into the swing of things before exerting oneself. I have a few personal examples. I was and try to be an avid runner. Before my trip, I had completed races between one mile and the marathon. I had been running every day leading up to my trip. After a few days in Cusco, two miles up, I decided to try a jog. I made it five minutes. My lungs were burning for want of oxygen. I did eventually make it to 30 minutes of continuous running while I was there, but that was over the course of six weeks. Another quick story that I have is that of a young couple who had recently married and was on their honeymoon, as I later found out. They were standing on the edge of the Plaza de Armas in Cusco as I walked past. I turned around and saw the woman struggle to hold up her husband as he was fainting in her arms. I rushed over and helped to bring him down gently so he could sit on the curb instead of him smashing his head on the stone pavers. They had been hiking all day and were trying to find the rendezvous for their tour group. The wife was understandably shaken and the man sat there for some time as he collected himself and others checked in on him. Altitude sickness. Not a joke. However, people native to these elevations have adapted genetically that helps them to live at this elevation. They tend to be shorter and their chest capacities are much larger. With larger chest capacities than someone living at sea level, the native Andeans are able to take in more oxygen. This may have given those living in the mountains more of an advantage over their coastal counterparts in battle. And there may be something to that because for the most part, as we'll see, those living in the Andes tended to conquer the coast and not the other way around. We also see the Spanish having a difficulty populating the Andes in the 17th century. Author Michael Mosley in The Incas and Their Ancestors mentions that colonists suffered from, quote, low sperm counts, infertility, inability to carry a fetus to full term, and in the event of live birth, neonatal death, end quote. Mosley points out that this inability to reproduce may have been a major factor in the Spanish deciding to settle along the coast at lower altitudes. The harsh mountain conditions may have forced people to domesticate plants and animals more quickly than groups at lower elevations. This theory was put forth by Alexander von Humboldt, who believed that necessity was the driving force behind intervention. And this is a solid theory, but we should not forget that people may have been motivated by other reasons. 
such as increasing their numbers or trying to bring resources closer to their settlement. One of the most interesting ways people adapted in the Andes is the way that they set up their family system, or AU. So what exactly is an AU? I'm going to quote Mosley again because I think he has the most basic explanation for it. Quote, An autonomous unit of production and reproduction is a group of related individuals and couples who exchange labor and cooperate in the management of lands and herds. End quote. In other words, an AU is a group of people who share a common ancestor and who share resources as well as labor. This wouldn't just include your immediate family, but your extended family tree. Think your fifth and sixth cousins, maybe even more extended. Membership to this kin group was typically traced through the male line for males, while the women traced it through the female line. Marriage usually took place within the AU, but from opposite sides of it, meaning the individuals were distantly related. I've been to plenty of family reunions, so what's the big deal about the AU, you ask? As I've been saying this entire episode, life in the Andes was difficult. Resources were not always easy to find, and drought could hit more often than not. The AU was an insurance policy for the people living in the mountains. Let me explain. As mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, there are many different ecological zones in the Andes, each one offering different resources and at times risks. Yet a natural disaster in one area of the Andes did not necessarily mean that the disaster would affect all of the AU. For example, say you grow maize in the Yunga region, located near the base of the Andes. A drought has hit the area hard, and your crop has shriveled into dust. However, another part of your AU lives in the Altiplano, herds llamas, grows potatoes, and weren't impacted by the drought. Now you won't starve because the other part of your AU is going to look out for you and give you some of their harvest. And they expect you to return the favor when they fall on difficult times. This exchanging of goods was not just when there were problems affecting part of the AU, but it was a way of reducing risk to all involved. Resources would be exchanged between the different parts of the AU that were living in different parts of the Andes. Corn for potatoes, wool for coca, llama meat for peppers. This capability of the AU to exchange goods within itself provided the people of the Andes with a kind of self-sufficiency. Reciprocity was the foundation of the AU, and not just with resources. Labor was also shared within the AU. If a couple needed a new house, the AU would assist in building the structure. However, the couple would be expected to provide the same help to those who assisted them. Not doing so would risk being isolated within the AU, something you don't want if your crops fail. Canals are another example. Irrigation structures would often be blocked or be in need of repair. Not fixing your portion of the canal could mean disaster for the rest of your AU downstream and would mean a burden to the entire kin group. So water management was key for the AU as well. The ability for the highlands to develop into AUs to survive 
likely played a role in these groups expanding to different areas of the Andes. The need for AUs to obtain different resources and to spread out risk forced these groups to disperse and find new resources like copper, wood, or even gold at different elevations. Groups along the coast, such as the Moche, which we will cover in the next episode, did not expand into the highlands. Instead, they spread horizontally along the coast, exploiting their fishery intensively and not diversifying their resources to the extent of groups up in the Andes. We will see how the Inca, as well as some of their predecessors, used different modes to expand their domains onto peaks and into valleys. Well, I think that's quite enough information for one episode. I hope you weren't too overwhelmed by all of that. The landscape was, and still is, vital to the people of the Andes. So it was important that I dedicate an entire episode to the subject. I believe that I have left you with a good idea of the environment that we are going to be taking part in as we continue our journey together. In the next episode, we will start the group that I previously mentioned, the Moche. We will discuss where they were located, their culture, religion, as well as their demise, all in a single episode. But before I go, I ask that you please give this podcast a review on iTunes, as it really helps the podcast reach more people. If you have any thoughts or comments, please email me at incapodcast at gmail.com or contact me on Twitter at Inca Podcast. Or you can leave a comment on A History of the Inca Facebook page. There is also the website, ahistoryoftheinca.wordpress.com, where there will be pictures, maps, and a bibliography for you to view. Right now, there's not many maps or pictures up on the website, but give it some time, and as we continue, there will be more and more content available. Thank you all for listening and join me on April 6th as we discuss the Moche.